0: A note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this, first, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment, to recognize His truth, and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages. God has said in His Word, He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, And if ever there was a time when His children needed to give special heed to this admonition it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world. The mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith, and few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the holy scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, tarry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time in reality, no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, Prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from The Life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24. Turning now to March 1932 Studies in the Scriptures Search the Scriptures John 539 Editor Arthur W Pink 1886 to 1952 These seven studies and the contents are The Prophetic Office of Christ The Epistle to the Hebrews The Life of David Saving faith, prayer, the cure for despondency, and sound the alarm. Study number one the prophetic office of Christ. The general office with which our Redeemer was invested by his Father is that of mediator between God and men. To discharge that great office, it was necessary that he become incarnate, that he should take into union with his divine person a holy and perfect humanity. The manner in which he was fitted for the discharge of his office was by his anointing, by receiving the Holy Spirit without measure. The character of his mediatorial office involved the threefold functions of the prophet, priest, and king, which was typed out in Old Testament times by the anointing of the prophets, priests, and kings, none other being formally and officially anointed. These three functions are not three separate offices, but are the varied activities of the one office of mediator nor are they separate functions capable of successive and isolated performance. To quote A. A. Hodge, they are rather like the several functions of the one living human body, as of the lungs in inhalation, as of the heart in circulation, and of the brain and spinal column in innervation. They are functions distinct, yet interdependent, and so together constitute one life. So the functions of prophet, priest, and king mutually imply one another. Christ is always a prophetical priest, a priestly prophet, and he is always a royal priest and priestly king, and together... They accomplish one redemption to which they are equally essential. The exercise of this threefold function of the mediatorial office was requisite for the complete deliverance of Christ's people by the circumstances in which the fall had placed them. In other words, the moral condition in which they lay as sinners makes it evident that not one of the three branches of his mediatorial office could be dispensed with. His people were immersed in ignorance, guilt, pollution, and bondage. John Dick said their ignorance is removed by the discharge of his prophetic office, their guilt by his priestly, and their pollution and bondage by his kingly office. As a prophet, he dispels the darkness of their understandings. As a priest, he atones for their sins. As a king, he delivers them from the bondage of depravity. He reveals God to us as a prophet. He brings us near to God as a priest. He renews us after the image of God as king. Unquote. Therefore, are we told that God has made Christ to be unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption? 1 Corinthians 130 Coming now more directly to the prophetic office of Christ, or more accurately, the prophetical function of his mediatorship. A prophet is one who speaks for another. See Exodus 7.1 and compare chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. In spiritual concerns, a prophet is one who speaks to men from God. Hence, he must be a seer. 1 Samuel 9.9 One who discerns the needs of men and who knows the mind of God, and hence is qualified to speak in God's name. Thus, the prophet is one who speaks in an eminent and extraordinary manner. He speaks by divine inspiration, whether the subject relates to the past, the present, or the future. When the term is applied to Christ, it is used in its utmost latitude to denote that he is the great messenger of God, the revealer of his counsels the full and final manifestation of the divine character, so that he could say, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. John fourteen nine. Of old God declared unto Moses, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Deuteronomy 18 18 and 19. This was one of the great messianic predictions. It announced that the supreme spokesman of God should be of Israel, according to the flesh that he should be like unto Moses, the typical mediator, that he would deliver the whole message of God, and that they who despised him would do so at their imminent peril. In all things, Christ has the preeminence. As prophet, he far excels all other prophets. First, unto each of them was communicated only a fraction of heavenly knowledge. But of the Mediator it is written, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Colossians 1, 19. Second, they received the Spirit only in measure. He, without measure. John 3.34 Third, They were unable to fully understand their own message. 1 Peter 1.11 Christ had a perfect comprehension of the whole truth of God. Fourth, they could not add one word with the same authority and infallibility to what they had spoken or written. But he, having all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge stored up within himself, did at all times and places give forth the mind and will of God as he would, so that what he spoke had its whole authority from his speaking it, and not from an agreement unto anything previously revealed. Finally, Christ was not simply the messenger, but in his own person was also the message itself. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by, were perfectly embodied in and personified by Jesus Christ. John 1.17 He was himself all that he spake. John 8.25 Again, John Dick said, When contemplating Jesus Christ simply as a divine person, We must consider him as the uncreated source of all intelligence and wisdom. He is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. John 1.9 In his mediatorial character, however, he speaks not properly in his own name, but in the name of him who gave him his commission and brings to us the Father's message. Hence we say that he was invested with the prophetic office, implying that he acted a subordinate part and by the authority of another. What has now been stated is conformable to his own declarations of which the following are a specimen. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me, John 7.16. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, He gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak john twelve forty nine the exercise of Christ's prophetic function may be considered in three distinct periods, the first from the fall to his birth, for although he was Not incarnate, he was the appointed savior of his people, and as far as was consistent with his present state, he acted the part of a mediator. The assumption of our nature was not indispensably necessary to prepare him for giving instruction to men, although every gracious communication to his people presupposed that event as afterwards to take place, and was made in the view of it. The theophanies or appearances of a divine person in human form, who delivered commands and promises to the patriarchs, anticipated and adumbrated the divine incarnation. The second period extended from the birth of Christ, or more properly, from his baptism when he entered upon his public ministry, to his death during this period the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father declared him unto men with his own lips John 1:18 the eternal Word had become flesh to reveal the invisible God he was the brightness or outshining of God's glory Hebrews 1 3. For in Christ incarnate is God alone fully manifested. First Timothy three sixteen. The wonderful Counselor had now been born among men. Isaiah nine six. The messenger of the covenant had come suddenly to his temple. Malachi three one. God's great apostle Hebrews three one had been sent unto men. The people themselves acknowledged him as such, saying, "A great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people." Luke 7:16. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, "This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world." John 6:14. Many of the people therefore said of a truth. This is the prophet. John 7.40 The third period extends from the ascension of Christ, or rather from the day of Pentecost, when he poured out the Holy Spirit upon his apostles to the end of the world. But this period may be subdivided into two portions, according to the the difference in the mode of administration. In the first he instructed the church by extraordinary means. The apostles were inspired by Christ and fitted by the Spirit to deliver unto the world the revelations made to them. When he ascended up on high, he gave gifts unto men, and he gave some apostles and some prophets. Ephesians 4, 8, and 11. Thus there was no difference in respect of authority between the doctrine of the apostles and that delivered by Christ Himself. They are equally His Word and to be received with the same submission of mind and the same undoubting confidence. The last period of the ministry of Christ as prophet reaches from the close of divine revelation until the end of time. During this interval, he exercises his office by ordinary means, that is, by the scriptures which men are required to read and understand, by his ministers who are appointed to expound and apply them, and by his Spirit through whose agency the understanding is enlightened, the affections inflamed, the will moved to action, the soul fed and built up, the light reformed and transformed. Therefore do we find the Scriptures representing Christ as still addressing us from on high. If they escape not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from Him that speaketh from heaven. Hebrews 12.25 Whatever knowledge of God and His will, of the purpose and power of His grace, of the realization of the world to come, is found among men, has been derived from the prophetic ministry of the Lord Jesus. As there is but one sun in the heavens, from which light has flowed to irradiate every region of the earth throughout the successive generations of mankind, so our Redeemer is the one source of all the spiritual wisdom which has enlightened men from the beginning of the world in whatever form it has been communicated, whether as a record of the past or a prediction of the future, a disclosure of mysteries which reason could not discover, or an authoritative publication of the will of the Supreme. And hence originates the unity of revelation, the harmony that binds together the Jewish and the Christian scriptures, the identity in respect of substance of the religions of the antediluvians and the men of the present age. For great as the difference seems to be upon a superficial view, it is reduced to this single point that the germ contained in the first notices of it has now developed itself and yields fruit in abundance." The four preceding paragraphs are condensed from the writings of John Dick, Arthur Pink. Study number two, the epistle to the Hebrews. Christian Perseverance, Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. The verses which are now to be before us are a continuation of those which we pondered in our last article, the whole forming a practical application to the doctrine which the Apostle had been expounding in the body of this epistle. In verses 17 to 21, a summary is given of the inestimable blessings and privileges which Christ has secured for his people, namely, Their sins and iniquities being blotted out from before the face of the judge of all, verses 17 and 18. The title, To Approach Unto God as Acceptable Worshippers, verses 19 to 21. The divine provision for their spiritual maintenance. A great priest over the house of God, verse 21. Then in verses 22-24, to the duties and responsibilities of Christians are briefly epitomized, and that in such terms as we may the better perceive the intimate connection between the results secured by the great oblation and the corresponding obligations on its beneficiaries. The passage we are now engaged with is a hortatory one. As we pointed out in our last, the method which is generally followed by the Holy Spirit is to first display the riches of divine grace and then to set forth a response which becomes its object. So it is here. All that is found in verses 22 to 24 looks back to and derives its force from the therefore at the beginning of verse 19. There is a threefold privilege named. Divine grace has given freedom unto all Christians to approach the heavenly mercy seat. Verse 19. It has bestowed this title through Christ's having consecrated for them the way into God's presence. Verse 20. And this blessing is permanent because there abides a great priest to mediate for them. Verse 21. Agreeing thereto, there is a threefold responsibility resting upon the saint, set forth thus Let us draw near. Verse 22. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Verse 23. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love. Verse 24. The first part of this threefold exhortation matches the first blessing named in the preceding verses. Because the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ has made a perfect and effectual atonement for all the sins of His people, thereby removing the one great legal barrier which excluded them from the presence of the thrice Holy One, let them freely draw near unto their reconciled God without fear or doubting. The second part of this exhortation agrees with the second great blessing specified. Since Christ has consecrated for us a new and living way in which to walk, having left us an example that we should follow His steps, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. The third member of the composite exhortation corresponds to the third privilege enumerated. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, and thus conduct ourselves becomingly as in his house. The order in the three parts of this exhortation calls for our closest attention. The first treats of our relation to God, the worshipping of Him in spirit and in truth, and in order to this, the maintaining of a good conscience and the separating of ourselves from all that pollutes. The second deals with our conduct before men in the world the refusal to be poisoned by their unbelief and lawlessness, and this by a steady perseverance in the path of duty. The third defines our responsibility toward fellow Christians, the mortifying of a selfish spirit by keeping steadily in view the highest welfare of our brethren and sisters seeking to encourage them by a godly example and thus stirring them up unto holy diligence and zeal, both godward and manward. Thus we may see how very comprehensive is the scope of this exhortation and admire its beautiful arrangement, how much we often miss through failing to carefully note the connection of Scripture Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Verse 23. There is some uncertainty as to the Greek here, some manuscripts having faith, others hope. Both the revised version and Baxter's interlinear have the confession of our, the hope, It seems to us that the American version is to be preferred. For while it is true that if we adopt the alternative, we then have faith in verse 22, hope in verse 23, and love in verse 24. Yet this is more than offset by the weighty fact that perseverance in the faith is the theme which is steadily followed by the Apostle not only throughout the remainder of this tenth chapter, but also throughout the eleventh. We shall therefore adhere to our present version, accepting that confession is preferable to profession. John Owen said, Let us hold fast the profession of faith without wavering. The duty here pressed is the same as that which the Apostle has spoken of in each parenthesis in his argument. Compare chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 3, 6, to chapter 4, 12, chapter 5, 11, to chapter 6, verse 20. The doctrinal section giving force and power unto it. Faith is here taken in both the principal acceptations of it, namely, that faith whereby we believe, and the faith or doctrine which we do believe, of both which we make the same profession, of one as the inward principle, of the other as the outward rule. This solemn profession of our faith is twofold. Initial, and by the way of continuation in all the acts and duties required thereunto. The first is a solemn giving up of ourselves unto Christ in a professed subjection unto the gospel and the ordinances of divine worship therein contained. Let us hold fast the profession of faith without wavering, Three questions here call for consideration, namely, first, what is meant by the confession of our faith? Second, what is signified by holding it fast? Third, what is denoted by holding it fast without wavering? As the theme here treated of is of such vital importance and as it is dealt with so very unsatisfactorily by many present-day preachers, we will endeavor to exercise double care as the Spirit is pleased to enable us. The confession of our faith is that solemn acknowledgment which is made by a person when he publicly claims to be a Christian. It is the avowal that He has renounced the world, the flesh, and the devil for Christ. It is the declaration that he disowns his own wisdom, righteousness, and will, and receives the Lord Jesus as his prophet, priest, and king. His prophet to instruct him in the will of God. His priest to meet for him the claims of God. His king to administer in and over him the government of God. It is the owning that he hates sin and desires to be delivered from its power and penalty, that he loves holiness and longs to be conformed to the image of God's Son. It is the claiming that he has thrown down the weapons of his warfare against God and has now completely surrendered to his just demands upon him. It is the testification that he is prepared to deny self, take up his cross daily, and follow that example which Christ has left him as to how to live for God in this world. In a word, it is the publishing abroad that he has from his very heart received Christ Jesus the Lord. Colossians 2 6. And let it be said plainly and emphatically that no one acknowledging less than this is scripturally entitled to be regarded as a Christian. Again John Owen said, The Apostle stands the whole remainder of the epistle in the pressing and confirming of this exhortation on a compliance wherewith the eternal condition of ourselves doth depend. And this he doth partly by declaring the means whereby we may be helped in the discharge of this duty, partly by denouncing the eternal ruin and sure destruction that will follow the neglect of it, and partly by encouragements from their own former experiences and the strength of our faith and partly by evidencing unto us in a multitude of examples how we may overcome the difficulty that would occur unto us in this way with various cogent reasonings, as we shall see, if God pleases, in our progress. To hold fast the confession of our faith means to continue in and press forward along the path we profess to have entered, and that notwithstanding all the threats of persecutors, sophistical reasonings of false teachers and allurements of the world. Your very safety depends upon this, for if you deny the faith, you are worse than an infidel who has never professed it. God plainly warns us, that if, after we have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are again entangled therein and overcome, then the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them, Second Peter 2. 220 and 21 It is one thing to make confession of faith it is quite another to hold fast the same multitudes do the former exceedingly few the latter it is easy to avow myself a christian but it is most difficult indeed to live the life of one Concerning the force of the Greek word rendered hold fast, John Owen stated that there is included in the sense of it, first, a supposition of great difficulty with danger and opposition against this holding the profession of our faith, second, the putting forth of the utmost of our strength and endeavors in the defense of it, third, A constant perseverance in it, denoted by its being termed keep in 1 Corinthians 15.2. Possess it with constancy. If our hearers could only realize the mighty power and inveterate enmity of those enemies who are seeking to destroy them, none would deem such language too strong. Sin within is ever seeking to vanquish the Christian. The world without is constantly endeavoring to draw him away from the path of godliness. Our adversary the devil is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That wonderful allegory of Bunyan's by no means overdrew the picture when he represented the pilgrim as being menaced by mighty giants, and a dreadful Apollyon, which must either be slain by him or himself be destroyed by them. Sad indeed is it to witness so many young professing Christians just starting out on their arduous journey to heaven, being told that the words, He that endureth to the end shall be saved, applies not to them, but only to the Jews and that while unfaithfulness on their part will forfeit some millennial crown, yet so long as they have accepted Christ as their personal Savior, no matter how they must indulge the flesh or fraternize with the world, heaven itself cannot be missed. Little wonder that there is now such a deplorably low standard of Christian living among those who listen to such soul-ruinous error. Not so did teachers of the past who firmly held the eternal security of Christ's redeemed pervert that blessed truth. No, they preserved the balance by insisting that God only preserved His people in the path of obedience to Him and that they who forsake that path make it evident that they are not His people no matter what their profession and no matter what past experience they had. To illustrate what we have in mind, an article appearing in a recent issue of a periodical on the subject of the security of a Christian begins thus. The person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who died for all sin on the cross and has accepted Him as His own personal Savior is saved, and more, can never again under any circumstances or conditions whatsoever, no matter what he may do or not do, be lost. Such an unqualified, unguarded, unbalanced statement as that is misleading and dangerous to the highest degree, the more so as nothing that follows in the article in any wise modifies it. But more, stated thus, it is unscriptural. God's word says, Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Hebrews 3.6 And again, if ye live after the flesh, Ye shall die, Romans 8.13, that is, die eternally, suffer the second death, for life and death throughout the epistle of the Romans is eternal. Such a statement made thoroughly in good faith, we doubt not, yet by one who is the unwitting victim of a school of extremists, leaves completely out of sight the Christian's responsibility. Yea, altogether repudiates it. Side by side with the blessed truth of divine preservation, the Scriptures uniformly put the solemn truth of Christian perseverance. Are the Lord's people told that they are kept by the power of God through faith? 1 Peter 1, five. So are they also exhorted To keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 Keep himself unspotted from the world. James 1.27 Keep yourselves from idols. 1 John 5.21 Keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude 21 And it is not honest to quote one class of these texts and not, quote, with equal diligence and emphasis, the other. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. The one-sided teaching of a certain school today renders such an exhortation as this as not only superfluous, but meaningless. If my only concern, as so many are now affirming, is to trust in the finished work of Christ, and rely upon the promise of God to take me to heaven, if I have committed my soul and its eternal interest into the hands of God, so that it is now only His responsibility to guard and preserve me, then it is quite unnecessary to bid me guard myself. How absurd are the reasonings of men once they depart from the truth. As well might I argue that because I have committed my body into the hands of God and am counting upon Him to keep me in health, that therefore no matter how I neglect the laws of health, no matter what I eat or do not eat, He will infallibly preserve me from sickness and death. Not so. If I drink poison, I shall come to an untimely grave. Likewise, if I live after the flesh, I shall die. The apostles believed in no mechanical salvation. They busied themselves in confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. Acts 14.22. According to the lopsided logic of many teachers today, it is quite unnecessary to exhort Christians to continue in the faith They will do so, but be not wise above what is written, and deem not yourselves to be more consistent than the apostles. They exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, Acts 11.23. Yea, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God, Acts 13.43. The beloved Paul held no such views that because his converts had been genuinely saved, there was therefore no need for him to be any further concerned about their eternal welfare. Rather did he send Timothy to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5 So Peter warned the saints, Beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. 2 Peter 3.17 Should we be asked, then, do you no longer believe in the absolute and eternal security of the saints? Our answer is, we do, as it is set forth in holy writ but we most certainly do not believe in that wretched perversion of it which has now become so current and popular. The Christian preservation set forth in God's Word is not merely a remaining on earth for some time after faith and regeneration have been produced and then being admitted as a matter of course to heaven without a regard to the moral history of the intervening period. No, Christian perseverance is a continuing in faith and holiness, a remaining steadfast in believing and in bringing forth all the fruits of righteousness. It is persisting in that course which the converted one has entered, a perseverance unto the end in the exercise of faith and in the practice of godliness. Men who are influenced more by selfish considerations of their own safety and security than they are with God's commands and precepts, His honor and glory, are not Christians at all. The balance between divine preservation and human perseverance was well presented by John Owen when he wrote,